0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been about 315 of them recorded so far, and if you're new to this, you might want to go to batgap.com and check out the archives under the Past Interviews menu. This whole thing is made possible by the support of generous listeners and viewers, so I like to express my appreciation to the supporters and encourage those who feel inclined to support it to do so. There's a donate button on the site. My guest today is Dr. Richard Moss. Richard is an internationally respected leader in the field of inner transformation, subtle body-mind dynamics, and a living path of conscious relationships. In 1977, Richard was a practicing medical doctor when he experienced a spontaneous spiritual illumination that awakened him to the multidimensional nature of human consciousness. We're going to be talking about that. This realization profoundly transformed his understanding of the roots of emotional suffering and inspired him to explore the almost limitless human potential for growth and healing. Impelled by this opening, he released the practice of medicine, in other words, he retired from it, to devote his life to mentoring individuals and couples whose lives have brought them to the point where they hunger to explore the mystery of their being. Whether called to his work by their soul's yearning to awaken and grow, or impelled by a health, career, or relationship crisis, his comprehensive and evolutionary approach to healing and forging loving relationships has transformed the lives of tens of thousands of people. He's particularly renowned for the innovative, experiential nature of his workshops and longer retreats that offer individuals direct experience of life-changing states of consciousness and provide them with very effective models and practices for ongoing personal growth. He guides seminars and retreats in North and South America, Europe and Australia, and is available for private mentoring for individuals at his home in Boulder, Colorado. He's published seven seminal books on his visionary approach to human evolution, which have been translated into six languages. So thanks, Richard. Thanks for being here.
1: Nice to meet you, Rick. Nice to be with you. Three hundred, I'm, I'm like like three hundred and twenty-six. Okay, whatever. You're getting up there. <laughs> <You're> getting, <laughs> no, it's wonderful. You know, years and years ago, I got to know in the '70s Michael Tom's and Justine Tom's of New okay. Dimensions Radio. Mm-hmm. Did many interviews with them. They became dear friends.
0: Oh, nice. I used to love that show. I used to listen <laughs> yeah. to it all the time.
1: Yeah. 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 Michael passed on a few years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, it's funny, I, when I was listening to that show it, it never occurred to me that I might someday be doing something like this, but um, I don't know, it just dawned on me one day about six years ago that I should do this and it's kind of been w- working out real well. So um, let's start with your awakening that you had when you were, I guess, already a doctor or you were in medical school or <laughs> what was the situation? No, I,
1: I was already a physician, I Okay, was, I'd been practicing about four years after internship. I I'd started a psychiatric residency briefly and suddenly had a deep clarity that I didn't want to be inside that kind of context anymore. And at that point the, the option was really general medicine. So I did emergency medicine, hospital medicine for about four years. And during that time I started to have some very fascinating events energetically with some of my patients. And it was all part of a, a process of search that had happened very spontaneously with me.
0: Well, can you tell um, us what some of those fascinating events were?
1: Sure. When I was coming out to do my internship, uh, driving from New York and, uh, with with my small amount of possessions to California, where I was going to do my internship, I camped one night at Jenny Lake, the Grand in, in Tetons. The, in
0: Tetons, we've camped Yeah, there.
1: yeah, yeah. And there I am with the two friends I was traveling with, and a man comes, and, and it was cold and I, I had a little down park on. And, it was sometime in June, but still, it was night, it was cold. Mm-hmm. A man comes walking up with a you know, beard and a turban and a bit of firewood and says, can I join you? And when my friends went to sleep, he started talking to me about the Sufis and he started talking to me about consciousness and about unconditional love and things like that. Then he left, I, I said, well, where are you going? He said, oh, you know, I have a car over there, I never saw it. I'm not saying he was an imaginary person, but he came back the next day for breakfast and when I got to do my internship, I was in it very briefly, and I overheard two two of the residents talking about that they were opening a new group with Claudio Naranjo, Seekers After Truth, was what it was called, SAT, and I ended up being part of that. And through that, learned the Enneagram, and um, started to I had been meditating already, so I was then more in a meditative process. So that was kind of the the path initially, and then I met. So that was an unusual event that Did you ma- did you formally
0: learn meditation or did you just sort of figure out something on your own?
1: Mostly I figured it out on my own. Okay. A little bit of reading and then you, you discover that, you know, what you figure out is pretty much what meditation is. Mm-hmm. Then one day when I was working in the emergency room there was a patient who had been um, in a fight and had been injured uh, and he was actually from a a, a local jail and he had uh, been violent with the other physicians and, and the x-ray technicians and there was a guard present and long story short, I, I realized that, that I was gonna have to observe him for a while and I thought I'd sedate him. So I had a nurse with me with medication to inject him mm-hmm. with. And I said to him, I said to him, you know, let me try to examine you. I know I know I will touch you the way I would want to be touched, assuming I was in great pain. And I began to touch him and and then suddenly Suddenly, I had this realization not to give him the medications, and I said to the nurse, don't. And a moment later, I became blazing hot, this tremendous energy poured out of my hands. The nurse literally sat down in a chair, almost in a faint, and the guard went and opened a window. The man in the bed's eyes rolled back, the whites of his eyes, he went dead asleep, he's a big guy, dead asleep. I stayed there in this energy for about 10 minutes with him. I had my hand over the top of his head, my other hand just at the base of his belly, I was barely touching him, I had wanted to examine his belly. End of story is, when he woke up, there was no more pain, I could examine him completely, there were tears in his eyes, and he went back to jail. And when this happened, there was a voice, which was not my voice or any kind of thought, and it said, you have nothing to share with this man except love." Mm. And at, that was the moment when my hands lit up. Interesting. So after that, I just, I, I said to myself, Oh my God, I've been meditating, I've been exploring consciousness, i would met a former physician named William Brew Joy, who wrote, wrote a book called Joy's Way, and, and had already been shown how to scan and sense energy fields, so I was familiar with energy, I was a young man. But, and I was curious about the, the role of energy in medicine and healing, way back in whenever that was, 1977, 76, probably 76. So I took a leave of absence, and, and in fact I didn't go back. And shortly after that leave of absence I had this experience that I've chronicled in some of my books, especially the book called The Black Butterfly, in which uh, suddenly this tremendous energy just exploded. I guess we can call it Kundalini, I didn't know what to call it at the time, cosmic consciousness or something. But at first it was an extremely intense experience of loss of boundary. I was, everything was vibrating, I could like see into the insides of animals. And,
0: you mean the, like you'd the, see their organs and things like that? Yes, yes.
1: Uh-huh. And as if they're just vibrating molecules, the land around them is vibrating molecules, the air is vibrating, everything was vibration. I was vibration. And it was very terrifying at one level because my ego was holding on for Yeah, here. I was
0: going to ask you, did this freak you out a little bit? Uh.
1: It did, but having been a physician, I knew that I wasn't having a psychotic episode, I could objectively report my experience. Mm -hmm. I wondered whether it was some sort of adrenal tumor or something, but I ruled that out just with self-examination. And so, I didn't truly know what it was, and after many days, uh, a friend, a friend, a Jungian analyst friend, an older woman, um, synchronistically showed up at the very same time that this experience started with me. I didn't expect her, and I end, ended up staying at her house and she took care of me, and one afternoon I was sitting in her backyard.
0: Why did you need taken care of? Were you incapacitated oh, by this a little
1: bit? I needed companionship, I needed some grounding, it was, it was profound. It powerful, was over, yeah. Powerful, powerful. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I, I was not incapacitated, I just was incredibly vulnerable, I was raw beyond words. Mm. What I began to do was I simply began to observe myself very carefully. And I would say, oh, this is a thought, that thought's creating this sensation. This is a future thought, this is a past thought. Each one of these thoughts is generating a sensation, Well, now I'm judging myself, now I'm judging my circumstances, now I'm judging... And I was just watching every thought, and this was going on almost day and night. There was so much energy running through me, I was really not sleeping well. And around the third day of that, I was sitting in the backyard and I suddenly saw a black and a white butterfly dancing in the air, and they landed on a branch that was kind of hanging down not far from me, just a few feet from me, and they started mating. And they were mating, and then when they finished mating, they danced around in the air and the black butterfly landed right center of my forehead, and bam, the experience went from being terrified to being absolute stillness, oneness with everything, perception and perceiver, all unified. And then the words reverberated in me, I and the Father are one, Um, again, not thought. And so began or continued this process or that was really the beginning of, of all of my teaching.
0: So what do you make of that in terms of the butterfly? It's very Carlos Castaneda-ish, an omen, a, a kind of an external thing kind of coinciding with or corroborating in some way a, a subjective development. What, what do you make of the subtle mechanics of that or the significance or the symbolism or anything like that?
1: It came days after my 30th birthday. The butterfly is a symbol of transformation. My mother profoundly loved butterflies. When I was a child, I caught butterflies and, sadly to say, mounted them. Mm. You know, But when you're young like that, you, you don't realize what you're doing It's cruel. You just I thought it was a fascinating way of learning and looking, and it was my, kind of the preamble to my interest in science, which still continues. I thought you'd ask me about this, and people do, and and, and I've written it in my books. And That period of life, that that period of awakening, even to this day, I can't explain it. I don't understand where it came from or why. I know it's not common to have it that deeply and to integrate it, but I do know that that it is not an uncommon experience. Before that, I'd experienced states close to oneness, profound flow through rock climbing, mountaineering, surfing, but I never experienced it in this way. And then I I see it as a beginning of the, almost like, if there is such a thing as being born again that has nothing to do with faith-based belief systems, but has to do with an actual energetic transformation, that's what happened. The Richard Moss before that just, he continued, he continued with his neurosis and anxieties and needs and fears the new person knew that that was not me that that was you know that, that was the construct that, that of a developmental stage we can call e- ego or mm-hmm. me the me i concept concept that we all have and it was a, an extraordinary transition you know in a spiritual sense it was like going through puberty into kind of adulthood and i would say i'm still in the journey of integrating that deeper and deeper it it never stops because it's like if you've lived in two-dimensional reality and suddenly you're placed in three-dimensionality, there's almost no limit to how many different ways you can explore three dimensions. Right. And, and that's, that's what I feel. You know, To this day, I continue to the energy, thank God, is never that intense, otherwise it, I, I wouldn't still be alive, uh, it would have just cooked my body. But that energy is always available to me, always. Mm. Whenever it's needed, it just flows through me and it's there.
0: And in a way, you know, who knows? Maybe the energy is as intense, but you've totally acclimated to it, you know, and and grown accustomed to handling that that sort of energy, so that it's second nature to you. You know, could think of it that way.
1: That's true too. Yeah. That's true too. And I would say that as we get older, and I'm approaching 69, the body wisdom just gets more and more profound. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the body's capacity. Obviously, the aging process limits body capacity, but body wisdom. Yeah. And the body wisdom linked with that consciousness um, is taking me deeper and deeper constantly into a sense of presence, into a sense of connection with people and, and, and a transmission. I think the transmission used to be very energetically strong, now it's more subtle but, but quite pervasive with people. Mm. I don't emphasize it. My emphasis is constantly on what someone can learn for themselves and not on me.
0: Yeah, that's important. Boy, the, every every sentence you say uh, has some little nugget in it that I'd like to like us to elaborate on. But let's elaborate a bit on body wisdom first. What do you mean by body wisdom?
1: The body is the most intelligent part of us. It's the end point of evolution. It knows. You have to just have a thought like he, you know, have a thought she doesn't love me or he doesn't love me, and the body knows instantly. Anger, sadness, loss, abandonment, grief. The body knows. Body wisdom is when when the body is knowing moment by moment, which is inseparable from the kind of heart's level of of profound feeling, that wisdom connects us to everything. The body is in a sense connected to everything, and so then the thinking becomes a servant of this body wisdom. If you think about, I don't want to date our conversation, but the recent attacks in Paris, I was in France at the time in a different city. Mm Uh, and the recent events in San Bernardino, California, that's an example of the head, the mind, belief systems, a profound effort to derive identity through belonging to something, having a cause, belief system, an action, that's all forcing feeling to be obedient to thinking it's forcing the body to obedient to be obedient to the emotional arousal of the thinking so there's no body wisdom whatsoever none whatsoever it's all mind dominated you know that is the disease that is the disease of that, that every human being suffers from until they they mature to some extent but as we get older if we're still on if we're on a constant path of releasing identification with what we have or don't have, what we think about ourselves, um, belief systems, as we sort of digest ourselves, what emerges more and more profoundly is this knowing, this organic embodied knowing. And it really is, it's part of the sky, the air, the life everywhere. It, it is part of Gaia.
0: That's nice. So, it's in a way, I guess you're saying like the body is a, can be at least, a very sensitive instrument for very useful feedback and uh, if we can learn to tune into it, then doing something like what happened in Paris or San Bernardino would be completely out of the question because it would be so egregiously <laughs> imposed to what the body is feeling. But what you're saying is you know, for those of us on a spiritual path or whatever, it can be a very nuanced, subtle indicator of the 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 value or the 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 appropriateness of each thought each emotion am I am I correct or am I putting yeah no that's yeah
1: exactly exactly it's a different level of intelligence and you know I was a physician so I understand how we objectify the body I understand how people derive their sense of aspects of their sense of self according to what they look like. So the, the body becomes an object, they become an object through what their body looks like, and in, and in so many other ways. So that's not body wisdom, but when, when that deeper body wisdom is present, so is the very word presence. So we are really in our bodies in the present moment, and now the mind, when the feeling and the, and the body, the heart and the body unify or work together, then the mind automatically rebalances, automatically. So in my work, I don't just have people sit and do satsang, I have people dance, work with breathing, move, explore their voices, and then sit and observe and interact. It's very, very highly experiential and creative because it really is getting consciousness deeper and deeper and deeper into the body. And what happens is people start to become happy, they begin to spontaneously experience communion with life with the moment connection they begin to fall in love with each other not necessarily in the romantic sense but in the in the sense of reverence and respect and appreciation um, they begin to be they reverberate with the voices of the people around them they feel it in a deep empathetic compassionate communion and it happens every time without fail without having to say now be compassionate or be good to each other there's no it emerges, the compassion and forgiveness and trust and humility, they emerge as we go deeper and deeper with consciousness into the embodied present moment.
0: Nice. Here's a, a sentence from your website that I highlighted uh, that relates to this. He said, his teaching leads to an economy of action and the efficient use of your time because very quickly your body tells you when you are off course and you learn to continuously reconnect to your inner knowing and wisdom basically just what we've been saying, but it's nicely phrased. Thanks. (laughs) So, uh, just to kind of wrap up a few other threads of the conversation so far, do you have any kind of esoteric feeling for what happened to you? I mean, if I wanted to, I could roughly classify people whom I've interviewed into one camp of people who did a lot of spiritual practices and seeking and, you know, intense stuff and then eventually, after many years of that usually, um, had some sort of profound shift or awakening. And then another camp, uh, it's actually a much smaller one, but there are quite a few people in it, people like yourself who weren't really doing that much or seeking that much or anything, and something profound just came on and, and totally shifted them. And. Um, I find it interesting that yours was accompanied by um, this sort of little voice in your head that actually gave you some sort of feedback or confirmation on on what was happening, like what the guy in the hospital, you know, the uh, your work is done here, whatever that voice said. And there's nothing
1: nothing to give or receive except love. Except love. Nothing to give this man. There's nothing to give this man now or to receive except love. And that was not. I mean, I know my thinking mind. I know what that voice is.
0: And you know these, these stories from, you know, ancient traditions. For instance, uh, was, was Saul on the road to Damascus you know, had this huge breakthrough change experience, and Muhammad was apparently, you know, really worked over by angels or something and, and underwent this, this huge metamorphosis. So, I mean, did you, do you have, not to get too woo-woo on you, but do you have any kind of sense that there's just somehow higher beings or higher intelligences in this universe that Tagged you and said, "Okay, this guy is going to serve, and now's his time, and you know, let's give him a little confirmation with this voice." Or do you not like to think in those terms?
1: I'd be scared to think in those terms, just in terms of ego inflation and grandiosity. Puberty happens, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And if it does, if it doesn't happen, you, you stop developing. I think in terms of, just as you've said. There are people who have been involved in a tradition, had a lot of practice, and through the practice have developed a certain state of consciousness. And because it comes that way, the way they teach is inseparable from the tradition in which they developed. That is good, but they are still in a sense within the confines, the language, the framework of that tradition. And they have to make people be part of that tradition. Even though the Buddhists will say, you don't have to believe anything, just do this work, meditate, you know, you prove it in yourself experientially. Still, there is this framework of belief in the hero, you know, the heroic and mythic quality of the Buddha and so forth. And, and the same thing with mystical Christians. I think there is a parallel process that has to do with maybe the very origins of what we mean by the shamanic process the individual who for some reason is quite different or has an experience that changes them and then becomes a source for the community. I would call it the lineage of spontaneous realization, and it's interesting that the, the teachers that were important to me early in life, like, like Bruce Joy, had a spontaneous realization. He was a physician, you may have heard of him, Back in, the, you know, he died in 2009, but he, he was a profound man. And then Franklin Merrill Wolfe, sure. who wrote the. Yeah. So, so Franklin Merrill Wolfe and I knew each other very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met him when he was 89. I, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead into his ear when he was 98. Wow. And he, you know, and he passed. And again, here is someone who was seeking, but wasn't seeking within the framework of any tradition and had a spontaneous realization, a profound one, at the age of 49. I was seeking too. But I, I I was seeking without any kind of framework. I was not part of a teaching, I didn't have a, a sense of lineage and context. I was just broadly seeking because I came alive in rock climbing, I came alive in skiing, I came alive in dancing, I came alive in those places, and I was unhappy. There was a place inside of me from early in childhood that didn't feel safe, that had compensated by being smart, that had done all the psychological things we do. For let's say, call it psychological survival, so psychological functioning, and something inside of me was hungry, but I don't didn't know what it was for. Nor did I really know that the kind of experience that I then lived at the age of thirty even existed. Yeah. So I'd never. I'd, so in a way, out of my innocence, um, I was able to live something with with a profound originality, and now I can draw on the deepest parts of Sufism or Buddhism or Kabbalah or. Mystic Gnostic Christianity, and 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 Yoga, and and Zogchen, and you're not, and I'm not
0: locked into any one thing. Yeah. No,
1: but and I know what they're talking about. I know it in, from my experience. I lived it, mm-hmm. you know. So someone will say, "Well, you teach Zogchen," and then they'll say, "Oh, well, you're teaching Sufism," or were you and of course I am, because at the root of all those those mystical paths, just, you know, actual spiritual paths that involve practice, not just belief. There is a fundamental experience of realization, mm-hmm. and, and so having that spontaneous realization, that fundamental realization spontaneously means that in a way, I am both an appreciator of the traditions, can take the best from all of them, but I'm not confined in any particular sure. tradition. Yeah. That doesn't mean in any way that I feel superior to the traditions, I, I've learned so much from them, they have a, a, a profound wealth, it's just that there are people who I wouldn't say I have a really large audience, I've had a very profound following. but These people do not want to, they don't want a guru. They don't want to line up, they don't want to put on clothes, they don't want to join a religion. They've already outgrown one or two religions, probably. <laughs> so, when I have someone who's a Catholic priest who works with me, or a Jungian analyst that works with me, or a, a Muslim that works with me, they're given a chance to discover their spiritual tradition in a completely new way that makes it more alive, because my experience gives me the capacity to look at their, you know, Jesus' experience and Buddha's experience and all of the experiences that these people, Muhammad's experience, through the perspective of my own experience. Yeah. This, uh, which I, you know, I'm not saying I'm a Buddha or uh,
0: No, you've kind of this, tuned into the experiential nature of the perennial philosophy, and so there's a resonance with all the traditions, you know,
1: because you're kind the of The perennial philosophy comes after the experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah that's why I would say the, experience, the experiential nature of the perennial Yeah. And then that philosophy, and then you're quite comfortable with all the expressions of that because it's your experience.
1: It, if when I study them and when when I look at some of the deep, work, you know, deeper parts of Jung or some of the poets like Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. the deep mystical poets, and I go, oh, yes, of course, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank sure.
0: you. Sure. Yeah, there are a couple of well-known teachers who uh, who could probably say the same thing you're just saying, which, like Eckhart Tolle, for instance, who wasn't really locked into a tradition, had this experience, and then began to sort of. Put things together after after that experience dawned, or um, Adyashanti, who was in a Zen tradition, but then after his awakenings, just uh, became very sort of all-embracing and eclectic, and deeply studied and appreciated all the different traditions. So, and and the, your point about the people not wanting a guru, this seems to be a stronger and stronger sentiment among spiritual people and seekers. Um, and there's there's the downside of it, in which people say, oh, "I'll just be my own guru," and you know, I don't need a teacher and all that stuff, which I think is can be kind of trivial and, and keep one stuck in for a long time. But then there's also the the reaction to the problems that have arisen with so many different teachers and gurus, and and the um, the hierarchical inequity that is usually there in those situations, where you you know, there's this teacher who is you know. In a place where you're never going to be. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's there's something about the peer-to-peer nature of teaching, such as you seem to be doing it, that is appealing to a lot of people these days.
1: Exactly. I mean, what, what people say to me is that what we what they really appreciate is that I'm living my human experience side by side with them. Right. You know, th- you know, there's I'm 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 living the path of relationship, the pains of separation, the the the, the struggles, the suffering, the, the compassion for the world, the, the sense of helplessness in front of some of the, you know, the, 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 the enormity of some of the craziness, um, and, and, you, and yet the transmission that comes since that awakening uh, is, is so indisputable. And since I'm, I'm simply saying, okay, well that's the transmission, Richard is a man, and Richard is more than a man, but I would never, neither in appearance nor in languaging, be the more then. To me, I it, never lose touch with the most basic aspect of myself, or the most basic questioning in myself, or the most, the basic, most basic vulnerability in myself. Yeah,
0: and you, and you would probably I say never, the same thing to your students, wouldn't you? I mean, put it metaphorically, you would say, you're all waves and we're all the ocean, you know, both.
1: Sure, metaphorically that, I would say that. I would basically say, you know, don't run away from fear. You, every time you, there's fear, you know, that's an opportunity to find out what you believe that isn't true in some way, and and um, it's an opportunity to choose whether you're going to keep your heart open or not, whether you're going to become self-involved or not. And if you have some sort of a, an expansion or breakthrough, are you going to become self-important? Is it going to become another adornment for your personal identity, your ego, or is it just going to move you into deeper and deeper humility? Mm-hmm. For me, that humility doesn't mean we become passive or inactive. It just means that there's nobody doing it, particularly. We're instruments, in a sense. Beautiful, um,
0: beautiful. I love that sentiment. And that we're instruments of the divine. You know, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Saint Francis. Yeah, and this this thing about the humility and and all it's it's a very important point because I I see so many examples of. People having awakening, perhaps assu- assuming a teaching role, perhaps prematurely, you know, in many cases. I, I mean, in Zen traditions, they say you should wait 10 years after your awakening before you begin teaching. And, and then it begins to go to their head. And, you know, things get more and more messy. So I really appreciate your emphasis on, on humility and your humanness.
1: It's an emphasis simply because at every step along the way, I'm sure trust has become, you know, much more profound in me now than it was when I was younger. But I've always had to deal with self-questioning, with doubts, with fear and vulnerability and mm-hmm. uncertainty. There is certainly a voice that knows or an energy that, of, of, that's balanced that comes through, but I don't lose touch with the man, myself, that mm-hmm. has made a lot of mistakes in the journey of love and and, um, uh, and intimacy and, and continues to want to discover what's possible between human beings. and. Um, that's great. So, so it, it's it's not a it's not like. If you have integrity, then you then you say, here's and, and as the shadow emerges and and is integrated and digested and it would be impossible for it to go to my head at this point and, <laughs> and and really all along thank God I was sort of protected I was protected by my insecurity I was protected by my my own internal real knowledge that hey wait a minute I mean these incredible things are coming through you and you're teaching. And it's affecting people's lives but you're learning all the time and you're making your own mistakes and, and I don't disguise them. Yeah. So, so anyone that's around me gets to see that. Um, and so this has been nearly 40 years, right? Yeah, so very close.
0: I think another important aspect of what you're saying is that um, it paints a more realistic picture of what the awakened state might be, because there are many people who assume a teaching role and then they try to put on this aura of you know, perfection and, inf- and infallibility, and which is, you know, usually that bubble bursts because of something they say or do, but they try to maintain that and then it gives people the expectation or the assumption that, well, you know, I, I couldn't be anywhere close to awakening because I, have, I perceive these imperfections in me and, I, and awakening must be like what this perfect dude is like. I think you're painting a much more realistic picture of it. And I think that's uh, much more helpful to people. I just want to interject before you respond to that, that um, for those who are watching this on the live streaming, there are about 30 people. Um, If any questions occur to you, you can go to the upcoming interviews page on Batcap, and there's a form at the bottom where you can submit the question and I'll ask it of Richard. Okay, back to you.
1: I love this. I I, I love just the space we're in in terms of what we're looking at and what we're talking about, so thank you. It made me curious about your background.
0: Um, well, I, I'll go through it very briefly because I don't want this to be about me. But um, you know, I had a bit of a troubled childhood: um, alcoholic father, mother in and out of mental hospitals, suicide attempts, and so on. And I got kind of messed up as a teenager: drugs and and so on. Dropped out of high school, and then I learned to meditate when I was eighteen: uh, transcendental meditation, and it had a dramatic. Profound immediate effect on me. Uh, within a few couple of months, I had you know reconciled with my father, gotten a job, gotten back into school, and one thing that I became a teacher a couple of years later, taught it for 25 years. You know, really. So, and I've pretty been been a pretty zealous spiritual aspirant ever since. Um, and uh, so, in a nutshell, that's my background.
1: Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks.
0: <laughs> and I'm no longer in the TM movement, but. Um, you know, I, I appreciate all the benefit I derive from it.
1: Yeah, exactly. I have, I have a good friend that sponsors me in Scandinavia, Sven Trier. Oh yeah, he, he was on cor- my
0: teacher training course in, in Estes Park, Colorado, so we're That's- we're good friends too.
1: Okay, so <laughs> you know Sven. I know Sven. Yeah, and, and when Sven was going through the metamorphosis at the time where he needed to outgrow the, the TM movement, I was the teacher that he found his way to. Oh nice. Just in the synchronistic way. So I was instrumental, I was contributing to his change. and. And now he's been doing quantum seminars there for, I don't know how many, 25 years or something in Scandinavia. So, <laughs> I have um, to tell
0: you a funny story. There was this friend of mine on the, on the teacher training course who sort of had a crush on Sven. And, uh, she, oh. and so I was kind of friendly with him a little bit and, and she said, well, you know, would you uh, invite him to come to our room to do a puja after the meeting, you know? and I'd like to get to know him better. So I, I invited him and he came there and he, he told me afterwards. I knew immediately what was going on as soon as I saw her there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, he's been mostly a bachelor, but he has a he has a lovely girlfriend now. Yeah, um, and uh, he continues on the path, and he brings good people there to present. And well, so the TM movement was in, was was instrumental for many many people, sure. and it, it really gave you gave gave so many people the experience that I can begin to I can begin to learn how to calm this this wayward mind mm-hmm. and, and how to break the the connection between thinking and identification and yeah, it was a very important thing. And and again, it was one of those things where where the teacher was and the teaching were truly important. The community wasn't as clearly important. And the Maharishi was so elevated in a way. I think that's part of a a, a pattern that will continue and it's very old.
0: Yeah. yeah. Another point I'd like to go back on, is your emphasis on the constancy of the path. It's like a continual unfolding. I tend to emphasize that in these interviews because I think it's the way it actually is. And, and some people, I've, I've actually asked some people, you know, towards the end of an interview, well, you know, we're, how, how, how do you th- see things going from here? How are things unfolding for you? What's on the horizon? And they kind of scratch their heads as if to say, you know, I'm done, you know, what more could there be? But I, I think there's a vast range of possibilities who was it? Ken Wilber said that you know, waking up is in a way just the beginning. There's also cleaning up and growing up, and <laughs> there's no end to to doing that. So I, I appreciate. I just want to say I appreciate your emphasis on this as a lifelong learning process.
1: Well, it is. The consciousness isn't. It, it's not an individual experience. It's not my experience. The first book I wrote was called "The Eye That Is We," because that the nature of that originally original awakening was that I was inseparable from everything, including other people. But while that's a a realization and and actually a direct experience, the the process of living intimacy, of getting into profound conscious relationship with other people, how could you ever reach the end of it? Mm. How could you? And I mean, in, in a certain sense, if it's just one, it doesn't matter, but if as soon as there's two, you're beginning to create the foundation for, let's call it society or even civilization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if you ask me where is it going, I would answer you, I don't know, I, but where where I think I'm going is into deeper and deeper trust in each moment and at the same time a willingness and a vulnerability and an openness to more and more profound connection with anyone and everyone, but also in particular a desire to see how deep intimacy can go with someone else, that means that you know, they're on a journey and we're exploring and I'm not the teacher, uh, I'm a student, and what's teaching me is relationship. That third consciousness that is relationship itself, in a certain sense even just between you and I in a way, listening to the process of our connection, mm-hmm. that consciousness is profound.
0: Yeah, let me read another little passage from your website here. The heart of his work is about presence and conscious relationships. Once you are solidly grounded in yourself, you become capable of profound relatedness with others. He believes it is the relational field created between awakening people that actualizes and transmits an evolutionary paradigm of consciousness that is essential to resolving the deep challenges of our time. I like that. I highlighted that. Perhaps we should emphasize once you're solidly grounded in yourself, you become capable of profound relatedness with others. Because, I mean, if you're not solidly grounded in yourself, then who is going to be related to anything? I mean, you don't know who you are, how can you know who somebody else is?
1: Yeah. And the problem is if you do know who you are. Whoever that is, the part of you that's aware of that already transcends it. In a certain sense, there's no knowing who we are. There's being. There's being. and, and when someone says they know they're enlightened, I go, yeah, so what part of you knows that? Or, uh, I was once asked to do a review for a teacher's book, a particular teacher, and I could see, I could feel, I could smell, taste the ego in it. So I wrote back to him and I said, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in this book, but I can really feel your shadow in it. And people like us, we should talk and, and look at these things together. How about, how about we just do that? But, but I can't write an endorsement for the book. And I got back a, a little succinct. Well, not everybody's ready for my, my teaching. Yeah, brother. And brother. So, and where, boy, that teacher. Where's that, that guy these days? Well, I'm not going to mention names. No, that not guy the
0: name, but I mean, how did he turn and, out?
1: He Cras- crashed and burned.
0: Yep, predictable.
1: But incredibly successful. I mean, big following, you know, da da da. Crashed and burned. And I saw that coming, you know, as soon as I met him.
0: Yeah. Okay, I thought we might go over some of them. There's a nice document on your website which people might want to read, called The Foundational Teachings of Richard's Work. There are about five main points in it uh, that are elaborated on, and I thought it might be interesting to uh, go through those. Um, would, would you like to do that? Sure. Okay, let me just read them first, and then we'll go through them one by one, and this will give people a nice overview of, of your teaching. The Power of Awareness focused, spacious awareness, ready, relaxed embodiment, energy awareness, and the mandala approach to presence and emotional clarity. And if that happens to be an older document and there's more you'd like to cover, we can cover more also. But would that give us a nice overview if we run through those?
1: Yeah, let's do that.
0: Okay, so the first one is the power of awareness. What do you mean by that?
1: It's really very obvious and it's amazing when people don't see it. But the power of awareness simply means that whatever whatever you're aware of, let's say whatever thought you're having, it's arising in a field of a deeper consciousness. Mm-hmm. So you have to be more than the field. You,
0: more than you the thought.
1: More than more than the thought. Right. More than the belief. More right. than the And and likewise with a sensation or a feeling, the power of awareness means that you can have a relationship to your thoughts as opposed to purely identify with them. Mm-hmm. You can have a relationship to your feelings instead of purely identifying with them. Mm-hmm. So I have thoughts and I'm more than my thoughts. The I that's more than the thoughts is just language. You could give it a name, you could say it's well, it's your spiritual self, or you could call it fundamental consciousness, you could call it Rig you could call it whatever you want to call it. Those are just names, but it transcends and is prior to all categories. You could call it God consciousness, you, could, you know, there's a but the power of awareness is simply that you're in relationship to your thoughts, you can choose to examine them, you can choose to question them, you're in relationship to your sensations, you can choose to relax around them, you can choose to let them drive you into thinking.
0: So how do you do that? How do we shift from understanding this intellectually, which probably most people do, and having it be something that is your actual experience?
1: Well, for example, if you sit down and do meditate, Mm -hmm. um, what you're going to observe is where your mind goes. So if you give your mind a simple assignment, okay, stay here let's not try for anything, let's stay in the body, let's uh, use the breath as an anchor in the body, be present for the sensations in the body, basically the instructions for something like Vipassana, meditation. It's different than what you were talking about earlier with TM, where you're giving a mantra. So you, 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 but the important thing with the mantra is the point where the mantra sort of fades, goes over the horizon, disappears, but the part of you that was listening to the mantra remains there, and now you notice that in your mind, Suddenly, there's an imaginary conversation with a friend because something's unresolved, or you want to communicate something. And you watch. You, see, you watch what's arising in your mind, and you begin to see the patterns of ego dynamics, um, such as a controller or a narrator or a know it all. Uh, and and you, begin, you, go, you begin to see, or there's a victim consciousness, or there's the one that feels superior, or, it, or there's the pious spiritual person, kind of these ego dynamics. The power of awareness is that you're the one that's observing it, therefore you don't have to actually become identified with and lost in that. The same thing with the sensation. We, we know, for example, when people have body sensations and then go and, and say, oh my God, maybe I'm." let's say it's a stomach discomfort, I'm getting an ulcer, versus someone says, well there's this strange kind of burning in my stomach. Someone that stays with just objective description of the sensation. Uh, versus someone who assumes the sensation might be linked to a disease. Actually people who do that have a, a lower life expectancy of people. So the fact is that you can be in relationship to anything that arises in your mind because of the power of awareness. The power is, this is a thought, it's not who I am. This is a sensation, it's not who I am. The who I am is really unnameable, but it is the part of me that allows me to be aware of that earlier on when you asked me about my awakening and I said I began to just observe. This is a thought, it's about the future and look what it creates, anxiety. This is a thought about the future and look what it creates, expectancy and eagerness and hope. This is a thought about the past and look what it's creating, a kind of nostalgia or an assumption about what normalness at that time was, oh God, I used to be normal, now what's happening to me? This is a judgment of uh, the environment, circumstances, people, what I call you stories. Um, or this isn't a judgment about myself. Instead of actually living in that world, you become the witness to that world. So the aware part of your consciousness, the aware ego, is that witnessing capacity, and it's powerful because it, it sets you free from being the victim of your own thinking or the, the victim of the reactions to your, your, your clinging to the things that, you know, Buddhism 101, clinging to what you want to feel and pushing away what you don't want to feel yeah. so you become the observer of the pushing away don't push you become the observer of the grasping for the pleasure the, the happiness don't grasp you know and then something new can happen that's yeah. powerful that that's the power of awareness it never stops you're going to outgrow everything and anything that you are no matter what we are it's built into us to transcend ourselves,
0: hmm. There's a and that
1: doesn't mean people do it, you know, they don't do it, but they can.
0: Right. There's a bit of a prescription-description issue here where you, know, you, you often hear teachers describing their experience, the way they function kind of offering that description as a prescription. It's like this this audience is sitting there listening and they're they're hearing how this guy functions and they're, they're kind of getting it. And to a certain extent I think a description can be a prescription where you can sort of, it can awaken in you a sort of an appreciation for how another person experiences and you can begin to inculcate that in yourself. But there's also a problem, I think, in that very often people have difficulty bridging the gulf between You know their experience of what the guy is describing which might be very rudimentary and and you know kind of a little fledgling stage of it and you know the full full full-blown ability to not be gripped and and overshadowed and identified with your thoughts so um how would you address that concern
1: well somebody sees a four-year-old has not had his first bicycle sees some kid that can do flips on them you know or (laughs) ride on one wheel and is that person going to say, oh God, I'll never be a good bicycle rider, or are they going to become really inspired and say, wow, when am I going to get my first bike? And you know, the Dawn Wall was climbed for the first time in Yosemite last year by two young guys earlier saw that. this year. Yeah. Incredible. That was not physically, physiologically, or even mentally potential possible 20 years ago, mm. you know, 20, uh, 30 years ago for sure. So w- my answer to the, that is. I'm in the shower, real experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a bachelor now, after 38 years of serial monogamy, my last the, the, my last relationship, she decided to leave because her grandchildren were born, it was time to go back to England, our relationship wasn't working well enough, and there were other real obstacles, like no health insurance for me there and no health insurance for her here. So she left, and I grieved, okay? It hurt, and I love her, and love never stopped. Mm-hmm. Now, So I'm in the shower, and I hear myself thinking, I'm trying to describe to someone what it feels like to feel this aloneness, and suddenly my mind goes, my my aware self goes, oh, imaginary conversation, self-justifying, about your own self-pity. And the moment I said that to myself, bam, it stopped, and now there's just the sensation of the water and I'm showering and it's delicious, bam. Okay, so now that's because I practiced. Yeah, you know, I've practiced for decades and decades. You know, stepping back into the present moment, just starting all over again. There's a whole chapter in one of my books, well, the Mandala of Being, which is about learning to step back into the present moment when you recognize what your mind is doing. So yes, it is both prescription and description, Um, and I like that 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 differentiation. the point is, there's no, you don't just wake up, you're not, the enlightenment is, is, is like a mustard seed, Jesus says in the mm-hmm. Gospel of Thomas, it's, it's the smallest of all seeds, yet it can grow to a shrub that sh- shelters many people. In Dzogchen Buddhism, they don't talk about anyone ever staying in that state of full awareness all the time, it's that they have they ex- access it first in just moments. Mm-hmm. That moment you step back into the, the moment you, you know, someone says to you, what part of you is listening to us right now? And for a split second, consciousness turns back to look for that part, for a split second. Or if I say to you, if you're not understanding this conversation wherever you are right now, what if you just say to yourself, who would I be right now if I just trust? For a split second, something inside just goes, Now what if that split second happened 50, 500 times a day, initially what if it happens you know, so it sounds like a formula, and at first it has an effect, and then after a while it doesn't. But then, gradually, you keep resting into relaxing, relaxing, mm-hmm. relaxing, into focus, spacious awareness. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. And,
0: when that actually gets us onto our second point here, that we were talking about the power of awareness. Now we're talking about focus, spacious awareness, and um, and I think your your bicycle analogy is good. The little kid watching the guy do flips. You know. You, You start riding the bicycle and you get better and better at it, it doesn't happen overnight, but you you, you develop muscle memory and all kinds of skills, and eventually you're doing flips.
1: Exactly. And there's absolutely no shortcut in the spiritual path. There is no shortcut. You can borrow your identity from your belief system and your club or your tribe or your gang or your sect, but if you keep exercising the power of awareness, again and again and again you're going to come back to this present moment and if you try to describe what is this when you come back to the present moment it's paradoxical yeah and the one in on the one hand every perception is vivid and so in that sense there's a precision of focus at the same time you're not collapsing into so let's say there's a feeling that's scary and you look at it right but if you look at it and you stay vast it just moves like weather like clouds that are just changing shape and it moves on so at the level of the, of the mind, we can talk about the mind as simultaneously focused and spacious as we get more and more present. At the level of the body, the body is more and more awake, alert, ready. It's you know the, the images of the martial artists, you know, you know, they hear the drop of water fall, or they sense somebody coming. If the mind is focused and spacious, that's the exact same thing as describing the body that is both ready and relaxed. Now most of the time when we're ready, we're tense. We're ready but we're nervous, we're anxious, we're tense, we're armored, you know, and if we're relaxed, we tend to space out, we tend to drift to sleep, we tend to lose focus. So it's the simultaneity of this, it's it's a muscle that's stronger and stronger and it does two things. It moves towards the center of the mandala. If you look at a flower, like a sunflower, right, Or, or a daisy, where there's that dark inner center. And these petals radiating out, circumferentially, out radially. And if you look at the mandala, what happens is two things. You, you want to be drawn to the center, but you want to be pulled to the outside. It's so impossible to de- describe to people what the state of coming deeper and deeper into present moment awareness really is, except you, you are more and more focused in the sense that everything is more vivid, precise, exact. And at the same time, you are not narrowing. So when I went to medical school and anyone that's studying anything, law, science, you're narrowing, you're narrowing your focus, you're losing spaciousness. You become identified therefore with your way, your knowledge, your information. But in the path of developing ourselves consciously, we're doing two things, we're extending into limitless mind. And every perception is vivid. We're coming deeper and deeper into the body so that in a split second you could respond to something. But at the same time, you're profoundly relaxed. Now, if you're really ready all the time and not relaxed, then any stimulus is going to scare you or overexcite you or over arouse you. And you're going to go into nervous exhaustion, literally neurological exhaustion. You're going to go into post traumatic stress. You're going to, you know. If you cannot find that place of relaxation at the same time, Mm -hmm. some dozen years, ten years after I had that awakening, I was in an auto accident, I was in the passenger seat, and the next thing I know I'm upside down in the back seat, I had my seatbelt on. Wow! I realized just before the impact at my side door, I could see the car coming, it was almost there was a split second, and not rational, in which I was trying to throw me and the car out of the way of this oncoming car, mm. and at the moment of impact. So I realized that at that moment of impact, I was in a very extraordinary state of consciousness, and that if I didn't actually find that state of consciousness again, then all of the injury was going to be imprinted in my body at the very level of consciousness at which point the injury occurred. Mm. So I crawled out of the car Got onto the grass of the the side of the road. um, And I just asked people to leave me alone. And I slowly, slowly relaxed and relaxed and relaxed, kind of like regressing until I felt that I was at the moment of impact. I was at the exact state of consciousness in which the impact had occurred. At one point, a policeman came and said, Are you all right? Do we need an ambulance? And I said, I just need a little more time. Please just trust me and leave. And then he did. Mm -hmm. And I just stayed with this and I I walked away with just a few bruises and no fear of being in a car accident again, you know, no no post-traumatic stress. I went back, so I focused and got spacious. I went deeper and deeper and deeper into the body and got faster and faster and faster. And then I was at the exact same energy of the moment of impact. And at the moment of impact, we're in a timeless state. At that moment of impact, people afterwards, they just can't seem to get over the injury, because the imagery is imprinted not only in the physical body, but it's imprinted at the vibrational level at which it took place. So that's why when when there's trauma in a very, very young child, that has profound repercussions for the rest of the life of that individual, psychological trauma, emotional trauma, any kind of trauma, because they are so undifferentiated, they're so close to a more unitive state, they're, they're pre-verbal if they're very young. When you're working with an injury that takes place at that point, in my work, at a certain point in a 10-day retreat, even people who have had injury at that level are going to reach a state of aliveness that is so undifferentiated and yet so present in their bodies that suddenly the trauma from early childhood actually passes through them. It's released. Maybe it's released as tears. Maybe it's released as sobbing. Maybe it's released as shaking and trembling and ecstatic just but it's released and they're not the same again because they reached the level at which the impact the imprint took place so that's what that's what the power of awareness is that's what it means to be both ready and relaxed focused and spacious you're going deeper and deeper and deeper as a practice you know sit down find a sensation like the air moving through your nose but don't lose the and be in your body don't lose the awareness of sounds and the space around you, and that's spatial in a physical sense. I mean, right now we can all imagine that we're on planet Earth, and that's big. You know, Most people aren't going to actually imagine they're even in the room they're in, or the building they're in, or, or the city they're in, or the part on the Earth they're in. And then if you want to get bigger, well, the Earth's rotating around the Sun, and now we're in the solar system, and then we're in the Milky Way galaxy. That's spatial. So it, it, it's a spatial suggestion of limitlessness or vastness. But mind itself, or consciousness itself, is not spatial, but it's, it's the great space. It's, it's limitless, it's vast, and within that are constantly arising sensations and feelings and thoughts and perceptions. So the experience you actually have when, after you emerge from a period of deep meditation or after you've finished you know, being totally focused on a rock climb, is that everything is alive. You're alive, everything you perceive is alive. And in that state, of course, the ego will then come back in and say, oh, I love to do this, now I'm going to become a rock climber, so it becomes part of identity again. But there is this process of learning through the body to be ready and relaxed, learning through self-observation to be focused and spacious, they're really not separate. Hmm. And I I find sometimes that going through the body is actually easier or, or let's say, more useful than just trying to sit in meditation. Hmm. Um,
0: Or both. I mean, a lot of times when I meditate, there's like this CAT scan going on of my body, you know, (laughs) checking things out, and things are coming to my attention, and so on.
1: Exactly. Uh, Well, both is best.
0: On this uh, spacious focus thing, uh, there's a quote from Padma Sambhava. He said, my my awareness is as vast as the sky, but my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour.
1: Um, Exactly what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: And I was reminded of... um, Earlier in the interview, when you were talking about your initial awakening, you had to have somebody take care of you for a while it's like you were vast, but you hadn't learned to integrate that vastness with you know focused aware focused within boundaries and um, and like you say about education or I mean, you know, you want your brain surgeon to be really focused on what he's doing. You want your, your commercial airline pilot to be totally focused on on what he's doing. But at the same time, that focus, especially if it's habitual, you know, day in and day out, can tend to become ingrained and entrenched. And so the, the kind of the comprehensiveness or the broadness is lost. And so I, I, I'm just reiterating what you're saying, basically, but I, I think that one way of looking at spiritual development or enlightenment is the um, development or the culturing of simultaneity of vastness and specificity, you know, having the two so well integrated that you, you can be flying a 747 landing it in a snowstorm and at the same time be in cosmic consciousness or you know, vast unbounded awareness.
1: And you will function better. Yeah, fu-
0: absolutely, right.
1: You, you, you'll, you'll act without knowing why you act, you'll know without knowing why you know. By the way, I love your clarity, thank
0: you. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. I was also reminded to suggest that there's been some research on meditation, I think specifically TM, but maybe other types, where they find that people habituate much more quickly to stressful stimuli as measured by galvanic skin response. So there's a loud tone or something, and and you know then the tone repeats itself at unpredictable intervals, whereas an ordinary person would tend to continue to react unnecessarily perhaps to those stresses, someone who is in a more settled style of physiological functioning tapers off very quickly and doesn't uh, get stressed by uh, something, they, they kind of adapt to, to the situation. So I think this has a lot of implication for PTSD and, and actually meditation of various sorts is being used very successfully these days um, to treat people with PTSD, sometimes with quite dramatic and profound and almost mm-hmm. immediate results.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and also what you're su- saying suggests something interesting about people habituate to a particular stress level or a particular level of arousal in the body. And one of the reasons I do long retreats is to try to get the body, to, to, to try to get that process to subside to a new level of balance, mm. so that now, now you have a, a deeper sense of what it's like to be really fo- focused, spacious, ready, relaxed, heartful. And then, then the slightest thought will arouse you, and then you can just quickly release, Mm. quickly release. And so, I teach people to breathe five times, but I ask, you know, five focused, spacious breaths. For a moment, you're very precisely aware of the sensation of the breath, and you're allowing intuitively your mind to 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 imagine your mind is limitless. And so. You're coming toward that silence that that has no beginning and no end, and at the same time there is this precision, like a barley grain of karma, the precision of the sensation of your breathing for five breaths. Now do that 20 times a day. Each time you do that, here's your arousal level, five breaths later you're here. Then you get into the habit of your arousal level going up, because you identify with your thinking, he doesn't love me, I have to do more, now there's not enough time, I won't have enough money, you know, the thoughts just... Arouse, 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 each thought. And then you go, ah, five breaths, my breaths. Then you start to see your mind arousing. You go, wait, 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 five breaths, five breaths. And you take your arousal level Nip it slowly. in the bud. Yes, and, and since not many people are going to be willing to, to sit down and meditate for 10 days, and even if they did, their arousal level would come down so low that they could function without any stress for maybe three days, or maybe a week, or maybe a month. And then the habit. The arousal habit of identification with judgments about yourself, judgments about stories about others, the way you look at the future, the way you look at the past—it's um, going to start. You're going to start having that instantaneous re- arousal with every thought. And if you don't stay alert and awake to go, or if you start to get kind of tense like this, if you don't simply say, "Okay, how would I be right now if I just trust?" You know, how would I be right now? If it's just all given away, I forgive. Now you only get that response for a millisecond initially, but what if there's 50 milliseconds a day? Then something begins to imprint, and so the mustard seed happens again and again and again and again and again. The moment of Rig again and again and again and again, brief, but so you just start to and so now this arousal level is much, much lower. What does that mean? That means when someone has a thought next to you, you may not hear the exact words, but you know their field has changed because of the thought. So you know they're thinking. So I sit there in front of an audience or in front of people, and I know the moment their mind moves because their field changes. And then intuitively, based on the content of, of what's going on in that moment, I have a pretty good idea where their mind went. The kind of internal question, the kind of internal doubt, the kind of internal, you know, Okay that mind just jumped into the future I can sense it oh, that mind just made a reference to the past based on the past made a jump into the future I can feel that I can see I can sense it in the field because my arousal level is so so still and it and it's an interesting thing as soon as with I mean with a group of people my and there's that collective field I'm influencing the collective field they're influencing me that causes me to move into a deeper and deeper stillness, and then I function more effectively as a guide. And, and, it, and it is a completely integrated, connected, inter, you know, it's the I that is we. It's not the I guiding the we, it's the I that is we, and it is, it is a field consciousness. But if I'm agitated, you know, then I'm not, not any good to anybody. And I still get agitated, you know, I'm, I'm learning what it's like now for the last eight months to live by myself. After I say 37 years of serial monogamy, there was always someone there, either either soon to be with because I was in love, or living with, you know, um, a massive change to a whole different set of mental constructs arising, a whole different, you know, and again and again it's like, <sighs> <sighs> settle, 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 settle. settle.
0: There's a metaphor you might like, I've used it before on this show, but I think you might enjoy it, and uh, that is that uh, you could think of a a sort of a stressed, agitated nervous system as being like stone, okay? And if you try to make a mark in stone, it's hard to make a mark, but if you do make one, it stays there a long, long time. Uh, Now, perhaps a less stressed, more settled nervous system is like, uh, sand, you know, you can make a mark in sand, it's e- easier to make a deeper mark, in other words you can register a deeper experience and the the mark doesn't stay very long, it gets washed away. Taking it to the next step, water. You can make a really deep mark in water and it, it's gone immediately. Next step, air. You know, you can easily make a deep mark in air, pass your arm through it, metaphorically speaking you, a very deep, profound, rich experience and yet it, poof, gone as soon as it happens.
1: Well that's a wonderful metaphor and it and it's very similar to one i used in my first book the eye that is we i talked about rock man you know a, a, a man a, you know a body that's made of let's say rocks the size of my fist okay if if you want to get that person to feel something you got to really push hard and hit them. right, right? and when you do uh, if you touch them softly they're not even going to know you that anything happened you know mm.
0: Kind of and like when we you were talking do, about you, the terrorists earlier.
1: Yeah, exactly. So as you practice, you evolve, and now you become pebble man, and then, and, and, and then if <laughs> you keep man. practicing, <laughs> you become Sandman, and then you become pumice man, and and, and and so the slightest touch affects you. Yeah. And at the same time, you just re, you're you just you're constantly being affected by these these movements uh, all around you and from within you, and and they're passing through. They just. Yeah. Uh, I like your metaphor very well because, you know. The point is, if you get to be water person or air person, you have to be prepared for extraordinary vulnerability. I mean, that means everything is going to affect you, everything. And if you at any moment identify with it, if at any moment you say no to it, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: Sounds like we have the makings of a spiritual superhero movie, instead of the Incredible Hulk and uh, the guy who's on fire and all oh, we could have Pebble Man and Rock Man,
1: <laughs> Sand Man, <laughs> and And Water Man and Air Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, so the next one of your main points, next one of your points was ready, relaxed embodiment. Let's talk about that one a little bit.
1: Well, think about a surfer. Just everybody's, if you, if you haven't surfed, at least, you're, you're, or a skier. Um, yeah, I've um, skied. Even if, Sure, me too, and then and surfed. i and never, not very good at either, uh, but, but enough to know what it's like to be in flow. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you're in flow on a surfboard, and as you get better and better at it, there is a moment where your body is responding continuously to every, the slightest change um, in, in the alignment of the board or the skis. Um, at the same time, if you're tense, you can't respout you, If you're thinking about what you're doing, that slows down the, the way that information is transferred between the peripheral nervous system, the central nervous system. So in a certain sense, at a, when, you're, when you're profoundly relaxed and profoundly ready, you're adjusting to anything. It would be the, the same process in martial arts. Mm-hmm. So in martial arts or in, in, in Qigong and in, and in Tai Chi, they're trying to teach people to be both relaxed and ready simultaneously. But every athlete that gets into a state of flow through whatever activity understands what that is. And things like surfing, which are very difficult to learn, and which the wave formation is changing all the time and the weather is changing all the time. You know, I'm teaching people with movement, with dance, with whirling, and, and again and again and again, it's not just have an experience, it's understand that if, if this experience suddenly moves you profoundly, it's because you're simultaneously very awake very alert and equally relaxed.
0: Yeah, I was just reaching for this book on my shelf. There's this beautiful quote from Billie Jean King, and and it it contains some other quotes, too, It's by this guy I interviewed a while back, um, Craig Pearson, The Supreme Awakening. He quotes (laughs) a bunch of athletes describing their experience when they're totally in the zone. And it's just what you're describing. There's this complete, like, effortlessness, as if they're not doing anything, even though they're involved in the most dynamic activity. You read accounts from real top-level athletes, Michael Jordan and people like that, and it's like they're just kind of sitting back and relaxing while they're doing this incredible stuff you know, in their sport.
1: Exactly, and if that then generalizes to being with your children, to being with your financial advisor, to working on your taxes, to being with the person that you want to deepen in love with, if 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 that generalizes into every moment of life, then we have what we could call you know spiritual integration or spiritual maturity so it's clear that we are able to access aspects of this consciousness in certain contexts but eventually you know michael jordan can't play basketball the way he did before because he got older sure um, same same with all athletes but can he still be in the same state of flow can billy jean king or or is the identity caught in a memory of how wonderful that was and therefore life now is not quite as full as it used to be. Rick Chaffee was an Olympic skier in the 60s for the US, and he came to one of my retreats mm-hmm. in the early 80s, and he experienced in the retreat the same level of energy that he experienced in the starting gate, and as he skied the giant slalom, mm-hmm. um, he was one of our gold medal winning Olympic athletes, and, and he had never believed that he would ever, ever, experience it again. And 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 so what he did was he left the kind of motivational speaking coach circuit and he actually went into um, the ministry. Decided that he wanted to in the framework of his faith teach consciousness. And I don't think I'm trespassing. I'm, I am interpreting him because it's been decades since we have had a conversation about this. Or mm-hmm. He kind of caught up with me with an email about 5 or 6 years ago about where his life had gone. But the 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 thing is to, to take something that happens at peak experience or peak moments and then continue to integrate it spiritual awakening cosmic consciousness kundalini awakening whatever you want to call it fundamental realization is a peak moment then integrating it integrating it is a highly creative imaginal inventive it requires discipline and consistency and persistence people need to know you're you're laying out the, you're laying down the path each time you take a step as you take the step from the very place you take the step from inside yourself, and it doesn't end. And, and there is no final state of illumination or clarity, in my opinion, in my experience. Th- there's a just a ceaseless evolution, and that doesn't mean that there aren't moments of the mustard seed or moments of unitive, no, sure. I'm not doing it. it you know, so both are happening, it, it's being and becoming, and evolving, and you're already there and you're still growing. Yeah, it's um, kind of
0: interesting to think of. You know, top-level athletic performance as a spiritual practice because to really reach the top level you have to sort of do what we've been describing here. You have to be able to be relaxed and dynamic at the same time or, or, or else you're just going to be in the second or third tier. You're not going to be at the top. And uh, so, you know, obviously most of us, vast majority of us, aren't going to be engaged in world-class <laughs> athletics, but everyone can do it. Somebody who is in a wheelchair, you know, with, with an injury can culture that same quality. There are ways of going about it, you know, and, and yeah. a- athletics just happens to be one and, and athletes tend to be famous, but it's something that's available to every human being.
1: Well, it is, and, and for example, if I have a group I'm working with, one, one of the simple exercises I do is, is I, I have people start just walking around in a room, and I ask them to do, watch the empty space where you're going to put your next footstep, okay? and then gradually I accelerate the speed that I invite them to walk. And if you have enough people crowded into a relatively small space, that automatically means you're going to start to have to change direction. So you you have to change direction even as you're taking a step because someone else is about to step into the same place, because the only rule in in this exploration is no collisions and don't stop. Don't stop for someone to get out of your way, you never stop, no collisions, and so as, as people do this. And first, I say, let's take an inventory of your state of being before we start. And people will describe where they are oh, distracted, uh, interested, curious, da da da. Then we do this, this uh, kind of porpoise, dolphin movement, faster and faster, more and more random. Like Stay this, in your body. Sounds be like in a school your breath. of
0: fish, you know, <laughs> or a flock well, of yes. birds.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right. And then at a certain point, I'll say, okay, now stop. Now, what is your state? And we'll hear alive, vital, calm, peaceful, centered, joyous. Okay, let's do it some more. And we find out that if you if you actually, you're forced to be ready, but you're also forced to be relaxed, you're forced to be focused, but you're also forced to be spacious, because if you're just focused on where you're putting your feet, then you're not going to be aware of the people around you, and then there's going to be collisions. But if we do this gradually and just so, this is a typical exercise that I would do, for example, with a group of people to give them a direct experience of shifting states, or shifting into a, a more focused, spacious, ready, relaxed state. And now notice it, okay? Now think about what we do all the time, all day long, we're doing the same thing, at the same desk, in the same way, through the same routine. Uh, a lot of my exercises have to do with, with um, discontinuity, we, we know that... Prigogine got a Nobel Prize for the theory of dissipative structures. If you add energy to certain systems, like if you put too much heat under your porridge and you don't pay attention, it's going to burn. Entropy, no more energy, no more. That's it. But there are certain systems. If you add energy to them, they reorganize, and now they can handle even more energy. And that's what I think a human being is. You know, what we call ego can only handle a certain amount of energy before it's going to go. You know, it's going to flip out into ecstatic states or psychotic states or you know it's going to break down or at a certain point the whole sense of me disappears the ego is gone and there's just a being that is alive with this energy pouring through it and it's dancing in the danger zone where the dancer becomes the dance you know that song maniac from uh, flashdance the film she's dancing to the danger zone where the dancer becomes the dance um so there we get this direct experience. Now, if if you if once you have that direct experience and you begin to realize there's a moment of discontinuity, that's necessary. So, is it going to come through an auto accident? Is it going to come through a divorce? Is it going to come through a disease? Or are you going to do something be, like be really creative? Stop doing what you're doing now. Go play your piano. You know, go out for a run, but don't go for a run every single day because then it becomes the same pattern. Change your energy, change your activity, discontinuity, discontinuity, discontinuity. Good idea to change your career every seven years, I've heard some people recommend that. Um, go play, hang out with the grandchildren, and you know, be absurd. Uh, after I get done teaching, I, I, I can't help myself, I do the most ridiculous puns and things, and when people will just, just I, I say, to look, I, I've been so earnest and serious in a certain sense in communicating this work. Now my mind needs to go to ridiculousness and it just starts to play with word association and, and it's, you know, it's silly. But I use, for discontinuity, I use singing, you, you know, not disrespectfully, but, of, of the, of, but singing to the Hallelujah Chorus, for example, you know, but making believe you're a trombone or a trumpet, you know, and, you know or, or gibberish, speaking yeah. gibberish, or, or try to point your finger at something and name it what it isn't which is virtually impossible. You know, once, once a word and a label has been put on something like finger, to call it a tulip, you, you can't do it. And, 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 and you watch the way the mind creates patterns, it starts naming foods or naming colors you know, when it tries to change. But the forcing the mind to do what it can't do, these discontinuities, I do them every day, multiple yeah. times in different forms with people in the retreats, because it just frees energy, it puts us into the body in a way that's no longer patterned in the old way, so we start to become ready and relaxed. The mind starts to become focused and spacious, and that is the state that we're talking about when we talk about now or or presence. To be really in the now is to be focused and spacious. To be really in the now is to be ready and relaxed, and everybody gets a taste of it in some some form, athletics, lovemaking, writing poetry, painting, essentially. When we talk about the now, the present moment, what we're really talking about is focused, spacious mind. What we're really talking about is a ready, relaxed embodiment. Uh, The deeper, the closer you come into the now, you leave the world of thought, the world of language, and you come into focused, spaciousness, ready, relaxed, Mm -hmm. and it's being. And there's no limit to it. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Incidentally, this Uh, is a
0: pretty traditional guru tactic, shaking the disciples up. You know, just kind of. Getting them out of their ruts, breaking their routines. You know, okay, get yeah. get up in up three at three in the morning and run this message over to the next village. And the guy gets over there and and he he, op- he hands the note to the recipient and it says, send them back. <laughs>
1: so he sends them back again. You know, just to, anything to kind of break it up. <laughs> well, discontinuity to put discontinuity in so that. Obviously, I was just talking to a a divorce attorney yesterday who was saying, you know, divorce is an opportunity for transformation, but people get so mired in their anger, they get so mired in their hurt, they get so mired in their fear, particularly financial fear, or if it has to do with custody of children, they get so mired in anxiety about who's going to get custody angry, you know, And, and, and we just literally poison ourselves, just poison ourselves hour after hour, day after day. It's so sad. And there you are. You're in a profound discontinuity. What an opportunity to to observe your mind, to observe the, the emotional arousal of, of, of the thinking. Um, it, it's just a tremendous opportunity. But we've we've never been trained to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. So so yeah. you end up with you end up with a discontinuity, and 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 sometimes a breakdown, but not a breakthrough. Is the someone said, I can't remember who.
0: You know how people often say the world is your guru and that uh, it's, it's a very intelligent universe and that things that happen to you are not happening capriciously, they're happening for your, your best, with your best interest in mind, even though it might not seem that way. So I mean, I think if you can kind of culture that perspective, it might help one to do what you're saying here and, and treat, um, treat disruptions and difficulties as opportunities. A question came in. Uh, This is from Richard in Southampton, England. It's about spacious focus. Relating to childhood trauma, is there an area of the body that one might concentrate on to help find the bodily roots of childhood trauma? I can feel that I am often overstimulated, and I suspect this relates to fear in connection with my father's temper towards my mother when I was a child. I know below that memory, my childhood or infant self is quite open and relaxed. All the best, Richard.
1: It's, there's not like a, here's the issue, here's the formula for solving it. I don't think that way. There's not a specific way to focus in the body. Um, it's broader than that, or it's, it's more simple in a way. So what I would say to Richard is, in the present moment, which is all we have, there's a sensation. Whether it was caused from your, your father and mother's aggressiveness or your father's aggressiveness, that's a belief. It may be true, it may not be true, but the important thing is that you have this sensation in the present moment. If, you, let's say, you're overexcited or there's anxiety, the question is, what are you going to do with it, or how are you going to relate to it now? And when things when things have been imprinted from very early in life, as I said earlier, you have to really shift levels. You have to descend into not regress to in the in the kind of hypnotic regression let's revisit this wound and live it through maybe you know I think that has a therapeutic value at times, but you do only have the present moment live deeper into this present moment and as you reach the places where there is inhibition and you touch them with respect and gentleness you dance them you sing them you find that your your consciousness and your body knows how to heal this already that potential is already there so Consciousness needs contrast, and we're not as linear as we'd like to make ourselves out to be, with, with like the DMS diagnostic textbook on, on symptoms and syndromes. And my experience is that, you know, after almost 40 years of working with people, the body knows how to heal profoundly, and the psyche knows how to heal profoundly. What we have to do is just let it become alive right now in the present moment, any way you can. Rather than focus on you know, where it might be in your body, just see what happens if you start moving. See what happens when you start dancing. See what happens if you just let yourself start letting your voice make sound and move to your own sound. And, and just keep moving into deeper and deeper into your own body, into your own creative, generative self expression in the moment. And suddenly, without you even understanding how it happens, something will release or reorganize. Since I've seen it happen thousands of times, I can simply tell you I've never tried to work with the problem at the level of the problem. I just work with the energy in the moment. Come in deeper into the body, come there through your voice, come there through dancing, come there through singing, come there through quiet sitting and observation, come there through breathing meditation. There's almost limitless ways, but you you reach a moment where you're getting closer and it's like the Sistine Chapel ceiling. you're getting closer and God and Adam are reaching for each other. So you, when you're out here, Richard, and you're, you're really stressed and bothered and, and you look at it with your head and you give labels to it and you explain it from the past, okay that's one level of it. But if you enter the sensation and you begin to dance with it, and you begin to um, sing with it, or you begin to voice it, or you you just cry with it, or you and you're getting closer and closer and close, and then suddenly, phew, it just reorganizes. You you shift. You go to a different level of consciousness. You go to a different level of embodiment, and things then pass through you. It's it, it's not like we're solid. It's not like these body memories are there imprinted forever. You know, it, it just you reorganize. It's a reorganization. It's not. That's just a way of describing a process that we go through. Sometimes it doesn't. It looks very chaotic or feels very chaotic. But afterwards, afterwards, as it settles down you discover, oh, and, um, I remember a report of a, a small airplane crash, happened to be a couple, both were di- he had severe heart disease and she was diabetic, and it took them almost 10 days to extricate themselves from the wilderness area where they had crashed, and at which point she was no longer diabetic and his heart disease had improved. Wow! Um, part of it is discontinuity, part of it is probably that they were starving, and
0: probably <laughs> Yeah. Fasting was good for them.
1: But the point is, these moments of discontinuity, however we reach them, allow us to reorganize into a new level of wholeness, especially if we go there with respect. We go there with respect for ourselves, we enter the process with a a sense of tender curiosity, we enter the process nobody's ever forced, I never force anyone to do anything. In fact, if they're going to trust me, I have to believe in them. So, Richard, I would basically say, don't try to heal it as, as a problem from childhood, it's an immediate present moment sensation, enter it, explore it, dance it, sing it, go for a run, don't try to run from it, just go, you know, dive into it with, with awareness, dive into it with singing, dive into it with dancing. and you know, what did Gabriel Roth say, sweat your prayers, you know, with, with the five rhythms methodology of dance, or five rhythms philosophy of dance. Hmm. That's basically how I would work with it, and there are other ways that I would work with which comes to probably at some point talking about the mandala methodology.
0: Yeah, Let's. Um, you've kind of segued into energy awareness um, <laughs> in what you were just saying, which was the next point, and we'll get to the mandala methodology in a second. But. You said uh, in in energy awareness that a human being has many kinds and levels of energy fields and you you refer to something called sacred attention. So let's let's touch on that before we go on to the mandala work.
1: One of the things that was really profound for me in in my own development was to learn to do energy work. That is to learn to scan or sense the energy field of a person. And of course I was coming from medicine and in fact I was still in medicine when I first learned about energy work um, in the 70s. And I thought I'd found this incredible methodology for healing, Uh, and it is, up to a certain degree. It it, it can be a a, a very profound form of healing. But what I got interested in was the state of consciousness I was in when the energy was the strongest, when it was being transmitted the strongest, and I was the most sensitive to it in terms of observing or sensing the energy in someone else, I thought, wow, instead of making this about energy work, why don't we make this about sacred attention? I'm I'm changing the quality of my attention in order to be aware of the energy, I'm changing the quality of my attention in order to be a transmitter of the energy, so how am I changing it? Well, I'm moving more and more into the present moment, I'm using something like the, the idea of the divine as a transitional object for surrendering to limitlessness. And then I'm letting that, I'm connecting to that and I'm letting it flow through me, over time, I took the work out of the context of energy healing and put it into the context of what I called sacred meditation. Uh, and I teach people that to this day, you know, in all my retreats. So, right now, for example, if 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 we take hold of the chair and and, and, and or that you're sitting on and you squeeze it hard, that's one form of, of delivering attention. And if you keep doing that, At first you'll be more alert, maybe you'll be more focused. After a while you'll get tired, you'll get irritable. If you relax and you touch the chair very, very softly and then you think, okay, well this is pretty soft. I wonder if I could, on a scale of one to five, if this level of softness is a five, I wonder what a one would be like, you know, and now I go, oh. So now I have to kind of, everything has to sort of soften inside of me. Turns out to be soft takes a stronger mind and more attention than to be forceful. So, if I know that I can breathe in now and be opening to, in the sense of using words, opening to limitless consciousness, opening to the infinite, opening to universal energy, opening to unconditional love, so I use those words and those, those as transitional objects, a way of giving the mind a direction of attention. I'm opening to that, and as I breathe out, I'm allowing that to flow through me and be present in my eyes, my heart, my hands, and I'm just listening to you and I'm walking with you and I'm going down the road with you. So now I've taken the kind of thing that happens when a healer is working on a client, and we've put it into um, the gas pump. <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we, we've put it into the, the daily environment, the everyday activity, so from energy awareness work which becomes to me too narrowed and too limited when it's about healing or even when it's about energy, to the state of consciousness or the quality of attention that's necessary in order to be present in that energy, to finally being aware of that as I breathe in right now, a part of me is connected to limitless consciousness, is like the spaciousness of the sky. As I breathe out, another part of me is precisely present for this moment. That's how I evolved energy work, and and you know, you can feel the field in a person, you can change energy in a person, but then you have to have a person as the receiver and the person as the giver. So then you have the, the John of God figure standing up there in Brazil, and all these people coming out of neediness to the great person who transmits the divine, right? There's just this level after level of mental construct between all of those people and who they really are. Now, If John the Divine takes rid of whatever he's wearing, gets on the subway or a bus in any major city in Brazil, would anybody feel any energy? If you meet Mother Teresa but you don't know who she is and she happens to be dressed in casual clothes, are you in front of a great presence? If the Dalai Lama wears a little different mask and wears Western clothes, are you even going to know he's there? The fact is, to the extent that these people have really embodied it, there's a field coming off of them, and if you're sensitive, you'll feel it, and even if you're not, it'll affect you. But there's this enormous transference that goes if someone says, I'm a healer, uh, and that improves, kind of like placebo, you know, it, it improves the, the influence of the energy, but we still miss the point. The point is, there's only this moment, where is your consciousness resting? Is it resting in ego-me and self-interest and self-involvement, or is it resting in the, the limitless consciousness in which all of this sense of me is arising anyway, arising and disappearing, arising and disappearing? And do I want to be a healer, or do I just want to be consciously present? And to me, very, very few people are going to make themselves into healers, and very, very few people I've, I've actually shared energy with thousands of people. I did it with every single person in a retreat for the first 15 years of my work you And mean, I did you'd it with go it.
0: around one by one or do one it with, by one spend
1: yeah. a half hour 30 minutes, 25, 30 minutes with each one mm. and with every client and with couples I you mean know, I'd have one, couple, one person here one I'd be in between them and sharing energy with the couples So with after thousands of times of sharing energy I figured well I've learned what I need to learn from this what is it really that matters What matters is that I simply changed my consciousness surrendering to the present moment. Knowing that one way of understanding the present moment is that it's that it's God or it's limitless consciousness or it's perf- you know it's it's perfect in its own whatever way it's pure white light it's whatever you want to call it, and I become an instrument for that I become a little more transparent to it it flows through me you can feel it I mean there's this energy that's coming out of the hands um, it's it's flowing off of you it it affects people they they you know I put my hand over someone and they go wow I can feel that it's warm it's tingly it's at a certain point, I realized using energy that way was tiring me. was beginning to burn me out, and I started, I just said, and also I'm buying an identity. You know, if I have this power, people look at me in a certain way. That makes me more safe because I'm special. And I, I I just didn't want to be special in that way anymore. But I didn't want to give away the intelligence of being present to that limitless consciousness, breath by breath, moment by moment. So it's a practice. I just the same energy that I would have used to do healing work on those thousands of individuals, when I did it individually years ago, is always with me all the time, but I don't activate it unless there's a need for it. Mm. And most of the time I don't have to activate it at all, it's activated by the people around me. I I just feel it suddenly just go, and there it is, and it's happening, it's just activated. It can be a dinner with people that I know, or or meeting someone new, It, 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 it even happens on a train or on an airplane
0: kind of probably specific to some particular person or some particular situation, right, without you even having to understand why this person or why this situation. Kind of like that story in the Bible where Jesus was walking along and some woman came up behind and touched his cloak, you know, and he turned around and said, you know, you touched my cloak, I felt the energy transfer. Yeah,
1: and she said, oh, you've healed me. And he says, it's your faith that healed you. Right. Um, Yes, exactly that. If we want to live into long old age and be conduits of this energy we can't force it we have to let it we have to just stay in a kind of innocent humility and let it flow through us when we need it because for me for example if i were to activate energy now in order to have an effect on an audience or a group why would i do it i would either want some form of control it would have to do something with power or i i wouldn't believe i wouldn't be trusting the rightness of the moment as it is okay so since i I am surrendering to trust the rightness of the moment as it is. There's no reason for me to activate something. It will activate of itself. It's there of itself. And it just keeps, as when I talked about body wisdom earlier on, part of the body wisdom is this stronger and stronger transmission, but it's subtle. It's not, it's not hurting the body anymore. It's just this. Mm.
0: That's an important point. So it actually used to hurt your body. Oh, Yo, yeah. Yeah. Because I know a lot of healers do end up with problems because they're—I don't know whether they're draining their own energy or somehow just being a being a conduit for energy is too much on their nervous system or something. But um, all of those. Pardon? Both of those? I think,
1: I think both of those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so. But also,
1: whenever there's identity, there's opacity. Yeah. You know, if so, if I'm a healer, then to the, that degree, that identity is a form of opacity. You are. Not healing may happen through you, and but who you are in the essence of yourself is unwordable, unnameable, it, it, it's not an identity. That makes you completely transparent. Now the energy does what it wants to do, yeah. and it moves as it wants to, and every one of us can learn that. That doesn't mean, you know, every one of us can learn to be that, that much more transparent, that much more available to this limitless energy, this limitless consciousness, and a vessel that's transmitting it radiating into the field, and, and so that field is an intelligent field because it's not coming from the limit, limitation of a specific level of identity, it's coming from a much more universal. It's sort of like a fiber optic device versus an electric cable. <laughs> Only a certain amount of information can go through an electric wire, but through a fiber optic device, 10,000 times more information for the same diameter of cable yeah. can go through. And so, as we keep surrendering, surrendering, surrendering into j- just the yes of this moment, um, th- what operates through us is this, is, is this amazing intelligence, as an energy, as a consciousness, it, it, depending on what level you talk about it it's, a, it's a, it, it's an energy, and as an energy you can feel it, it's palpable. Mm. As a consciousness, something changes inside of you, but you don't know necessarily why it's happened. I often say to people, especially when I'm coaching people with in, in the business world, that no matter what interaction you're in, don't give up your own agenda, but at the end of that interaction, every person there should feel better about themselves.
0: Okay. This energy thing reminds me of Amma, whose picture you see over my shoulder. You know, She'll sit there for 10, 12, 14, sometimes as many as 24 hours without getting off the couch, um, You know, hugging people one after another, and it's not a trivial gesture, it's this profound sort of attunement thing that takes place, and come away fresh as a daisy apparently i mean just she, she experiences physical pain from the repetitive motion but there's this sort of like joy and buoyancy that just can continues and you know whereas most of us would say get away from me after an hour or two of that it's like she just says bring them on it's interesting to watch her do it because there's this like you were saying something about um not clinging or not grasping or not getting stuck there's this sort of like um fluidity, where one moment she'll be crying with someone, the next moment she'll be scolding her swami, the next moment she'll be laughing uproariously, there's just this continuous flow of being in, exactly. the, in the moment with each person, in each moment, situation, and it's, it's in a way it's like utter chaos around her, but there's this, she's this kind of silent center of uh, deep kind of being, um, it's, it's just kind of a, an interesting illustration of the point you've been making.
1: And for me... I would lead these ten-day retreats, and afterwards, I'd be really vulnerable, really depleted. I didn't want people to hug me, Mm. so I, I, you know, I, then I, and then as the years went by, I began to realize that wherever there's any form of tiredness or burnout or something, there is some form of identification, some form of manipulation. And as I kept surrendering, now I can finish a ten-day conference, a ten-day retreat. I, I can be hugged by as many people as I want. The fatigue I have is just normal fatigue. Go to sleep, have a night's sleep. I'm fine. Um, yeah. So, so there's you know, and I just finished an extraordinarily busy schedule, and people, will, you know, travel schedule. People will say, "Well, how do you do that?" And I say, "Well, if if I don't have a thought about why it should be a problem, then my body moves. I'm not moving. Yes, there is jet lag. That's true. Yes, there is interruption in my normal dietary pattern because I, you know, I'm a I'm a whole food plant based person as much as possible, but not always possible." when you go to a restaurant in, in another country, particularly some someplace like France, where every single thing is some form of meat, which is pretty much true everywhere.
0: You know, you use the example of a regular cable versus fiber optic, and the the idea of resistance comes to mind. If you have resistance in a wire, then um, it heats up, you know, it could even melt. Whereas if there is no resistance, then the, the current flows unimpeded without that heating effect. So it's kind of like what you're saying here is that Perhaps years ago, there was some resistance in, in your wiring, <laughs> which caused. Well, the, resi-
1: yeah. Yeah, the resistance is what we mean when we say me or I. Yeah, yeah. The resistance is the belief that somehow I'm a, a separate, self existent psychic entity. Yeah. That I'm the source of these thoughts. I'm the source of these feelings. I'm the one that's causing this to happen. And that me does not exist. And that me, when it does exist, is resistance. Mm -hmm. So if you get a lot of energy moving through you, and that ego structure, that self-identification is still there, it is going to burn you out and and burn you up. And that's probably the great the paradox is Nobody is born transparent. you know, and it, you have I have an awakening at thirty, and I'm made transparent for a little while to extraordinary energy. And then after that, my ego self, my me comes back in, trying to understand all this and live its life and plan, organize the future, and take care of, the, you know all the daily aspects of, of necessity, the field of necessity of daily life. and and it becomes again engaged as the doer or, or as the one that's done too. And and over time, just over time, because that's not conducted to the energy, there is suffering. So then over time there is relaxation, and more relaxation, and more relaxation. But it's not the relaxation into a diminished consciousness, it's the relaxation into an even more embodied, present, ready, awake state. And words like humility are really important, and words like compassion are really important, and words like forgiveness are really important. And, and And trust may be the most important of all for me, because once there's trust, there's just now. You know, if there's not trust, then something has to be fixed or changed, and I'm on my way to the life I need, and I'm on my way to the life I should have. Instead of I'm in the life Mm. that I have, this is it. And and so I'm, you know, I'm slowly learning trust, forgiveness, humility, steadily, and as that as that happens then the transmission is is clearer, purer, and, and doesn't hurt me.
0: Mm-hmm. You, so you've been talking about the diminishment of the me, um, but would you say that there's still very much a sense of personal self, in a way? I, I've, I've had discussions with friends about this, where some of whom say, there's no sense of me anymore, no sense of personal identity, um, and I don't understand how they can function or ho- who I'm talking to when they say that. Um, it seems to me they're always... But that's just from my perspective. I mean, maybe I just don't understand where they're at, but it seems to me there's gotta be some sense of personal identity to a certain extent, or else you wouldn't know how to put a fork in your mouth. You know, I mean, be, you'd just as soon put it in the wall or something because there's no you know, identification with this here needing sustenance. Um, does that make
1: sense? Yeah. Can you have a circle without the central point? I would say no. By its very nature, a circle is is something it is determined by a radius, a diameter or circumference, and you can't actually measure the circumference, it's a, it's a transcendental number pi. I think there's always something that is me, but the identification with me is a separate person who's important, who needs to be understood, who's not being seen, you know, that me, that me can fall away, that me can become less and less and less and less and less, and less present and still, I'm talking to you. And still, I organ. You know, we did all that it took to organize this, yeah. and that meant you planning. Got, you, you,
0: and you have back pain, and there's you know this, and there's that, and you know we need to yeah, eat, right, need exactly. to eat lunch, and I mean, there's these personal sort of things.
1: Right, and and you know, I think every person has to decide or choose, you know, mm-hmm. in a certain sense, the trajectory of where their life is going based on what they've experienced, what. What they want to do, and some people are completely dev- identified with the material world, and they they believe that they they borrow their identity from you know what they have financially. Let's say, if, and if so, if they have a lot of money, they are self-important, and if someone has more money, then they're more important than the person who has less money, and so forth. If you're not borrowing your identity from your tribe, from money, from being clever, from being smart, then then what happens is you begin to start to overflow from this place that we can't name, and it just it overflows. Now, it, to say that that's me would not be true. You know, to say that I'm working constantly to let go of self-involvement and identification, which is a resistance to life, and that I don't want to derive my identity from um, what I have or don't have, or how smart I am, or what group I belong to, or whether people love me or don't love me or like me or don't like, you know, it, it, those those terrorists, they they are they have no center, so they derive their identity from a belief system. They derive their identity from the group that shares in their belief system. They arouse their own emotional reality out of their beliefs, um, out of their judgments, out of it, you know, and then they make it even more real by behaving. Yeah. and then they behave in their crazy way. and they're lost. They're completely lost, but everybody else is, until you're awake to some extent, you're lost in a similar way, just not so extremely and not so destructively. Um, I was
0: watching a documentary by Fareed uh, Zakaria the other night about the Mumbai terrorist attack about five years ago, and they they one of the terrorists wasn't killed, and they, they were talking to him. He was in a hospital bed, and they said, "Why'd you do it?" And they said, "Well, they told me I would become a big man, and I would go to heaven," you know, and you know. <laughs> First of all, it's that they told me he was completely buying into what these other characters had told him. And then there was this sense that, just as you said, you know, self-aggrandizement and some promise of future reward, all based on belief and, you know that doing some horrible, violent, absurd thing was actually going to produce those benefits.
1: And there's no remedy to it except consciousness.
0: Yeah, yeah, good point.
1: Yeah. What well, we should just try to understand from all this is, the nature of how people become identified and do these things and and borrow their identity from externals and from what people tell them from belief systems and but we do it all the time you know someone comes up to you and says oh you're looking really tired you, what do you feel in that moment you know mm. someone comes up to you and says wow you're looking great what do you feel in that moment yeah. you know you mm. see i mean and it happens all the time our, our parents are constantly telling us do this don't do this who we are who we aren't and and, and so the initial stages of development that form the functioning human being that you and I are at the level of me or ego-I, that's a stage of development that can't be skipped. But as long as we're still borrowing identity from the outside, then we're going to manipulate, we're going to narcissistically manipulate people in the world to see us the way we want to be seen. That's what ISIS is doing. It's narcissistically manipulating the world to see it in a particular way. and. The only way to to counter that is is a certain kind of education, spiritual education. In fact, I just read a recent study that people, young people who have had some uh, religious training in Islam are much less likely to be radicalized than the ones who never have. And that's really interesting. So the radicalization so-called I mean, I call my re- deep retreats radical aliveness because I'm talking Just, about coming to, to the roots of aliveness, right. but radicalization in this sense has to do with people becoming so much the instruments of a particular limited belief system and deriving identity from it and getting people to see them in a certain way. And you know, the fact that we will allow them to cause us to be afraid, and the media will emphasize words like terrorism, in a sense, playing into the very thing that they are attempting to do. We start to derive our sense of identity as victims or as avenging angels and everywhere in between for an act that that is essentially an act of pure unconsciousness.
0: You say in your notes here, deepening in consciousness is the obligation of every person and the most important form of service you can offer the world. And let's use that as a segue into your final point, the, the mandala work for presence and emotional clarity.
1: If you watch where your mind goes, if you become observant, if you that witnessing consciousness, which I would say the birth of the witnessing consciousness is, what, is a good way to describe awakening, and as that witnessing consciousness goes deeper, you begin to transcend more and more and more limiting ideas of yourself, or limited beliefs about yourself, or limited behaviors. But the mandala basically says, there's only the present moment. And when the mind, when your conscious, when your mind leaves the present moment, there's only four places it can go. It will go into the past, or the future, or into judgments of yourself, or into some form of story judgment about others. And others could be trees, for lumber, you know, a person that makes their living as a lumber person, you know, trees are objects that are resources to be cut, for an environmentalist or something else, you know. Um, So the, the you depends upon which me is doing the looking. So basically start to observe, wake up when you find yourself in the future telling yourself a story that's scaring you and realize what's actually happening right now, come back to the present moment. On my website there's a a free e-course that really teaches this process that people can use, it's really helpful, it's in my book The Mandala of Being and then in the sequel to that book Inside Out Healing. So the mandala teaching is essentially about if you're present in the center, now you're in, you're in the kingdom of heaven. You're in non-dual consciousness. As soon as you leave that, and you have to leave it. A baby, Ken Wilber would say, a baby is, is in an undifferentiated state of consciousness. Then then we enter into a differentiated state of consciousness, and then we're, we want to go into a, a, a differentiated, undifferentiated consciousness. So there's a me and no me, you know, after, after the awakening. Before that, there's the ego, I, the me. And I, I'm, I'm buying into it. But if you want to slowly do a practice that takes you back into the present moment, watch your mind, and imagine if you had a Harry Potter kind of magical device, and it just, and instead of you having to have a witness, it was your witness, and it goes, "Wake up, wake up! You're in the future, and you're making yourself very anxious." Mm-hmm. Okay, start right now. Come back right now. The only, if if you come back to the present moment and your heart relaxes, your body relaxes, your heart fills, the future has completely new possibilities. Okay, But when you're identified with the future, the present moment becomes either the eagerness and hope of a positive expectation, or the fear, worry, anxiety of a negative anticipation. So wake up, wake up, come back, start over. And, and the mandala basically it, it teaches, okay, watch, now you're in the past, so there may be regret, guilt, blame, or there's positive memories. Positive memories are lovely, as long as, but if you're dwelling in that, you're not going to actually see what's happening right now, you're not going to feel the air on your skin right now. You're, you, the, the, the vividness of colors will not be, you, you'll be in a peaceful place because you're in a, a positive memory, but you're not going to be in the liveness, the, the profound aliveness of, of rich perception that is present moment consciousness. So it, it's, an inf- it, it's, it's, a, it's a benign state, but it's an inferior a possibility let's call it you know uh, uh, for yourself when we're in these me stories we're either exaggerating and aggrandizing ourselves and, and making ourselves self-important and bigger or we're making ourselves um, smaller and so you know almost everybody has a story somewhere in some context I'm not good enough you know it's it, it, it's a belief I'm not good enough and, and there's a sensation that that maybe drives that belief it's a sensation of being unsafe or a sensation of not feeling seen or connected enough. Um, and and then there's this story, I'm not good enough. And I work with that with people all the time, you know, and the, the ways that you can work with it are clear in my book and, and my books and on and, and the website. Um, so if you want to help a person wake up, you have. It, you see, the only way you know you're off the path is you, that you're on the path is when you're off the path. You, you know, Say that again, how's that? When you're on the path, you don't know it. It's when you go off the path. That uh-huh.
0: you Particularly yeah. because you start getting slapped around a bit by...
1: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> or, or if, you're doing, if you're doing TM and suddenly you've gotten the mantra completely and you're in some imaginary conversation, imaginary interaction with a person because you're angry at them and you haven't been able to resolve it. The, and then you wake up and you go, oh, I've lost the mantra or I've lost the breath awareness in my body. You were talking about scanning Kind of like like an M- MRI scan through the body or a CAT scan through the body. You, you've lost this immediacy of present moment sensation, present moment perception, um, and and the mind is absorbed someplace, right. right? Well, it's going to be absorbed in a simple sense in stories about you that are either going to make you bigger or smaller. It's going to be those what I call the me stories, or it's going to go across to the other side because subject me, object you. It's going to go and then you're going to be lost in judgments of other people, or judgments of your house, or judgments of your career. Okay, And every one of those thoughts will arouse something, anger, resentment, bitterness. Future stories will create hope or fear, basically, in simplest, and the past will create positive remembrance or negative remembrance. And, and all of that is mind-generated, and if you start to observe that carefully, and I take people through long clear processes of feeling the shift when they're identified with the story like I'm not good enough and they step into the present moment and they're not identified with that story. Or we balance it by taking out the complement to the story. You say I'm not good enough or what's the proof? You know, oh, da da da. Okay. Now you can't have the cons you can't even con- you can't have the conceptual structure, I'm not good enough, without burying its complement. I am good enough. Mm. So there's no such thing as hot without an experience of cold, right without wrong, good without bad, up without down. I'm not good enough means you've buried in your shadow, I am good enough. Okay, so now I'll say to someone, take out I am good enough. It, it's a different psychology. You, you, there are situations where you're in that, but this was a situation where you were in, you're identified with I'm not good enough. Okay, now, prove it to me, where's the Change your psychology. Find the evidence you're good enough, and people, person will say, well, I've done this and I've done that, and I have friends, and I've traveled, and I've, I've been sick, and it just goes thing after thing after thing, and I say, well, how do you feel now? I feel wonderful. I feel light. I feel free. I feel open. Okay. Okay. So, now you have two choices. You know, positive thinking will tell you, identify with I am good enough. Or neti neti, one of the older teachings will say, neither this nor that. Try to be I'm not good enough, and I am good enough. I'm not good enough. I am. You, you can't do it. So there comes a moment where you have to just drop them both, and now you're once again in the present moment, not conditioned by the arousal, the unhappiness of "I'm not good enough," or the positive affirmation of "I am good enough." You're you're back into something more essential. So the mandala methodology basically says: watch your mind, watch watch your thinking, watch your your ego dynamics, and Power of awareness says you're more than that, so let's engage them in a very creative way that leads you back to the present moment. In other words, instead of being there's no way to teach people present moment consciousness. You can teach people how they leave the present moment. At the moment you realize you've left the present moment, you're back in the present moment, and so that's what the mandala methodology is. It's it's it's, it's very powerful. Just yesterday, last night, in fact, there's a, a new thought very. I can't think of the name of them, them right now, the New Thought Group in, in L.A., a very dynamic minister and his wife who does the music, and they they they, they teach a course, they, they use my book The Mandala of Being. So the first eight-week segment or six-week segment of their course is reading that book, and so they invite me, and I Skyped with them yesterday, last night between uh, 9 and 10, no it was Thursday night, excuse me, between 9 and 10. And it was just people telling me how that book changed their lives, how they, you know, that. One woman was talking about how she reads the book and she shares it paragraph by paragraph with her mother and how it's changed her mother's life. Because suddenly, suddenly instead of hearing about the power of now, you've got to hear about the power of not now. Essentially, if you're in thinking, you're not now. If you're in thinking, you're in the future, the past, or judgments of yourself, beliefs about yourself, judgments, beliefs about others, and anything else, money, God, I mean that's where most people are. They don't have a direct experience of God, they have a belief in God. Meister Eckhart said, "When I am there, meaning as a me or an ego, then there are gods. But when I am not, there is only God, and I am God. And for that, that was heresy, because he was saying that he and the Father were one. And you know, but only Jesus can be the Son of God. You know, in fifteenth, fourteenth uh, century Christianity. Um, so, so he, you know, died. He died in prison before he was burned. But, but, you know, most people don't have." They don't have a direct experience of this mystery that some people would call God, but they have an incredible amount of beliefs. So someone can tell some susceptible individual, you're going to do this and God will love you and will smile on you and then you'll go to heaven. And and It's all thought. Yeah. It's all thought. It's nothing but thought. Where is that thought arising?
0: I don't think we covered all the main points, you also had like differentiating emotions from feelings, transformation through threatening feelings, working with dreams, and living an evolutionary relationship. So P.T. Barnum said, always leave them wanting more. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I think we're probably going to have to do that because we can't take the time to delve into each of those points in as much detail as I would like, and because um, we've gone on pretty long. But um, what can we say, or what can you say, in as a synopsis or as a summary of everything we've covered today, and perhaps anything we didn't cover, uh, things that you would like to leave people with uh, who have been watching this interview?
1: First of all, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the thoughtfulness of you've brought to the interview, so thank you.
0: And I'm grateful to you for doing it with me, it's symbiotic.
1: Good. For the people that are listening, whatever touched your heart, keep it. As best you can. Whatever you didn't understand, don't worry about it. But don't give up. If you decide to just keep waking up, moment by moment, coming back, starting over in this moment, it, you will get. You know, you'll have to face the feelings that are scary. We didn't talk about that. How do we deal with these very scariest feelings? Um, but, but gradually, slowly, through vulnerability, through openness, your heart will open more and more, and and you will become the embodiment of the very thing we all need to do. To, 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 to keep evolving and to heal each other, uh, heal our relationship to the world, to the planet. Um, so my, my, my feeling is just just keep going, keep mm-hmm. going, keep going, don't give up, don't or, give up.
0: Or as Mr. Natural put it, keep on trucking, right?
1: Keep on trucking. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, that's the greatest gift you can give to anyone, is how present you are to yourself and how present you are to others. So that's basically how I'd sum it up. Um.
0: I think it's a great that's a great summary point because seeking you shall find, knock the door shall be opened. There's definitely always a result, I would say, if one just perseveres. What is it the Gita says? It says, No effort is lost and no obstacle is no obstacle exists. Even a little of this dharma removes great fear. I think personally that, you know, pursuit of the spiritual path however one decides to pursue it is the most worthwhile thing a person can do in life. Uh, and of course there are all kinds of wonderful expressions of that that benefit others. I mean, I interviewed a guy, Adam Bucko, I'll be putting that up soon, who spends his time helping homeless kids in New York City, and that's his spiritual path. And um, so it's not, it's not all just about marinating in one's own subjective experiences, but however one defines it, it's uh, such a rewarding way to live one's life. Just keep on trucking.
1: I think it's the most important thing we're here for.
0: Yeah, it's why we're here ultimately, I think.
1: And we're really fortunate. Uh, I just feel grateful, grateful. People shouldn't think that when you wake up, then there's no more suffering. It's that you have a new relationship to it. I had a friend that framed it, uh, the paradox of, you know, is enlightenment freedom from suffering or the capacity to suffer? How would you know the difference? Say yes, say yes more and more deeply and, and, and risk loving and risk being touched and risk touching.
0: And kudos to you, you know, I mean it must have taken guts to ditch your medical career after all the study and expense you put into becoming a doctor. And you know, it's, it's, I think it's really neat that you've been serving people for so many decades in the capacity you have. It's a life well lived and I hope you continue to live it and do it much longer.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Rick.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I forgot to mention Richard's website, which is richardmoss.com. And I will be linking to that and to his various books, which you can get on Amazon, on the page on Batgap for this interview. So on that note, let me conclude. I've been speaking with Richard Moss. I suppose it's Dr. Richard Moss, but you don't usually use the doctor. And it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you all have too. There have been about 40, anywhere from 30 to 50 people online throughout the conversation, but many thousands will watch this in the coming weeks. If you are watching these interviews and would like to watch them live so as to submit questions to the guest, um, there's a link on the upcoming interviews page on, on under future interviews on batgap.com for the live streaming thing of each interview. If you explore around the site, there are a bunch of other things that I always like to call to people's attention. You can sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted there's an audio podcast of it and there's a page that shows you how to link up to that on various devices there's the donate button which i mentioned in the beginning the past interviews are categorized four or five different ways under the past interviews uh, menu so check that that's about it so thanks for listening or watching and thanks again richard and we will see you for the next one
1: i hope there is a next one enjoy it all righty Okay. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye.